So here in Genesis 46, we have some exciting things happen. We, we see this. Last week, we talked so much about reconciliation and the work of reconciliation. That, that, that's a process here that is going on. And, and now we're going to see that really completed uh, in this chapter. And we begin there in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 46, as it says, Then so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father, their little ones, and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him. To Egypt. We'll stop there for a bit. Uh, as we look at this, we, we see Israel took his journey, is where it starts. Now, Israel so far had had major issues with Egypt. And everything that Egypt had to offer uh, Israel, who is Jacob, right? God changed his name to Israel. He's had problems, but now, and he's had doubt and fear along the way. Because of the things that have been thrown at him, he's had doubt and fear. I mean, rightfully so. His sons are, are captured in Egypt, and, and he's facing difficulties. His own family is just is completely dysfunctional, and so now he's got fear, but then his sons come and give him this report that Joseph is alive. He doesn't believe them. Then they tell him the whole story. Look at all that Joseph has given, all that this desire is to bless you and care for you, care for our family, and then Jacob's response is, it is Enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So then he took his family. He packed up everything and he took his journey. Now, this journey, though, it's interesting. This journey wasn't just let's beeline for Egypt. And, and you could understand if his idea was, let's go straight to Egypt. My son Joseph is alive. Let's go see him. Let's get there as quickly as possible. I mean, I think most often that would be our circumstance, our, our, our perspective, Christmas morning kind of idea, right? You wake up, let's get to the presents. We have a whole process with my kids. Hey, guys, you, you don't go in the living room. You come in our room first. And then they come in our room, they pile on, we're like, don't come before 6 o'clock, and they come at like 4.30, we're like, go back to bed, I can't go back to bed, and then you just, it happens again and again. Anyway, they come in, and we, we, we will sing a Christmas song, and we'll read the Christmas story, and we'll pray together, and we're trying to clear our eyes and trying to see straight and the whole thing, and, but the process is somewhat painful to the kids, let's be real. And we try to be spiritual, but I mean, come on. Kids, any kids in the room, you're like, let's get to the presents. 
And so then, then it's time to get to the presence, and we usually have a little bit of a process that we make fun out of it, right? We'll go real slow. Hold on, we gotta go in age order. Or hold on, we're gonna do this. One year, we, we wrapped the door to the living room with wrapping paper, right? So they had to like bust through it. Another year, I, I, I wrapped the entry with a chain and a lock, and they had to go find the key. They had to go on a journey to find the key to unlock the lock, to take the chain off so they could get in the living room. So all of these, you know, it's just a, it's miserable, right? For the kids, they're like, come on. No, we, have, we try to make fun of it. But when good news comes, what is our, our often, you know, the quickest response is, let's go. Let's make it happen. Let's watch this. Let's, let, let's, let's go see Joseph. And he says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go see him before I die. And he took his journey. This journey was not just straight to Egypt. Now he's beginning to respond in faith. Faith that, that would overcome his fear, that would overcome his doubt, that he's not going to get caught up in his own ways, but he's going to walk by faith. And the first step of faith that he takes is he comes to Beersheba, and he stops in Beersheba. He doesn't just go straight to Egypt. Knowing his son is alive, he said, hold on. And what does he do there? He offers sacrifices to God. He recognizes God, the God of his father, to be his God. And he stops in Beersheba so that he could worship, to offer sacrifices. And, and you know, let, let this be a great reminder, a great charge to us as we walk with God, when sometimes there's the good news or sometimes there's that thing right in front of us and we're ready to go and everything seems to make perfect sense that we should go this direction, we should move forward this way. This is absolutely what we need to do, but we need to stop and we need to worship. We need to offer sacrifices. We need to honor God. And in that, we're, we're inviting God into our decision-making. And that's what Jacob is doing. He's taking a step of faith. This journey started with him inviting God into the decision making. It made perfect sense to go see Joseph as quickly as possible. But he invited God. He stopped to worship so that he could then be in step with God. So that he could be in step with God's will, God's way, and not his own. He's done enough things at this point to get himself into enough trouble to know that, you know what, I should probably check in with God on this first. And how many times in life do we just take steps and think this is completely logical? And we don't ask God for confirmation. We don't ask God to, to show us his way or to give us confidence as we move forward. And we don't stop in worship and just glorify God. You know what we sometimes do is we'll just start going and on the way we won't stop and just be like, God, can you please come with me? Or when things are difficult, when things go wrong, then we are like, oh no, what did I do? Lord, help me. But Jacob stops right at the beginning, comes to Beersheba, he stops to give honor to God 
to glorify the Lord. And you know what he's not doing? He's not just stopping so that he could get an answer from God. He's not treating God like a genie in a bottle. Just saying, God, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. He stops to give sacrifices, to honor and glorify and worship God. And in that, in that fellowship with God, God speaks. In all that we're doing, make sure we stop and worship. Invite God into our decision making. Don't invite him in after we've made the decision. That we might be sure, that we might be in step with him. In the midst of our fellowship with God, God will speak. You might think, well, I don't know why. I'm not hearing the voice of God. I don't understand what the problem is. How's your fellowship with God? And this is something I've talked a lot about lately, guys, our prayer life, our fellowship with God. And this is why I've, I've wanted to spend so much extra time in prayer. These Wednesday night gatherings, let's stop and pray. I shared this on Sunday in our last elders meeting. I said, guys, let's stop talking. Let's just pray. And then when we're done, we'll see God move and then we'll talk. And we had an amazing time in prayer. And you see God move, you see God show up, you see God speak when we are in fellowship with him. And sometimes we're missing it, we're not hearing and we're wanting to hear, but we're not stopping to have fellowship with God. And God did speak. He stopped to offer sacrifices and then clearly he went to sleep because then God gave him vision, a vision in the night through a dream. Interesting here now, a lot of that going on in this family throughout the years. Visions coming in dreams, right? Joseph, and God had blessed Joseph with this ability, this gifting to interpret dreams and even his own dreams and, and to interpret the dream of Pharaoh and, and to, to really use those things to raise him up but also to prepare the way. As we talked about last week, it prepared the way to care for his family, the, to, to continue the promise. God used these dreams to raise Joseph up, to put him in the position he was in so that he could bring this reconciliation, this care, this redemption, this protection for his family, his people, Israel. But God spoke, and we've seen him speak through dreams, and here's another time that he speaks through a dream. To Jacob. And what God says is in line with God's character, his nature, his word. Okay, so listen, I've said it before when we were talking about dreams several chapters ago. We have to be careful, right? We don't want to just, every night we go to sleep and we have a dream, we're like, oh man, God is speaking. Like maybe you ate something weird, you know? Maybe you have a headache and you're having this dream that something's pounding you in the head, like God is pounding me in the head. Hold on, maybe not. Just take a moment here. Here's what, when, when God is speaking, whether it be through life, whether it be through somebody, whether it be through his word, or whether it be through a dream or a vision, it will be in line with God's character, God's nature, and God's word, Okay? We keep those things in mind because sometimes we'll take these, take dreams or visions. I had a vision, God spoke to me, and it's this, and it might be some wild thing. You're like, okay, how does that line up with God's word? 
How does that line up with God's nature, who he is? And how is, it, how is that clearly pointing you toward God's will? And so these are the things that we need to be cautious of, of course. So God does speak, and it is in line with who he is. It is in line with his word, and we see this come out in other places in his word. But he says, first, go. So naturally, Jacob would be afraid. He stops, and in a moment even, God addresses his fear through this dream. And he doesn't even confess the fear. He's just there, and he's there to worship God. He's there to have fellowship with God. And God is like, Jacob, you are clearly fearful. Go. Do not be afraid. And he would naturally be afraid. Let's rewind for a moment. His father, in chapter 26, his father was forbidden by God. Chapter 26, verse 2, it says this, that he was forbidden by God to go to Egypt. Okay? So, maybe he shouldn't go to Egypt. Now, rewind some more. His grandfather, Abraham, you may remember, he, he had some trouble in Egypt, right? And so now there's some issues there attached to Egypt. There would naturally be fear. This is the lineage, okay? His grandfather caused some problems in Egypt. His father was forbidden to go by God to Egypt. So that would cause some fear. And then further, two of his sons were temporarily lost to Egypt. He thought, he thought it, he, I'm sorry, well, three, even Count Joseph, right? Who was in slavery in Egypt, and so you put all this together, like, hold on, I don't really know how I feel about Egypt. Egypt is bad news, and yet my son is there. Emotions and circumstantial things can easily sway our decisions. And based on that fear, Jacob could have said, you know, I'm not going. Let's, why don't we meet halfway? Can we just get word back to Joseph to meet me somewhere along the way? Because it's not safe there. It's not a good thing for me to do. This is naturally a thought process that Jacob could be going through. Because emotions can get the best of us. Emotions can dictate or sway our decisions. But God told him to go. And God told him here further that he had blessing for him. He says, do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. Now, this is similar to the promise that was given to Abraham. I will make your descendants great. I'll give you many descendants. I will give you a great nation. And now he's saying, I'm going to give you a great nation there. I'm going to fulfill a promise, but not in the promised land. So hold on. There's another Easy to doubt, but that's not the promised land. Egypt, but you're going to fulfill a promise there in Egypt? Egypt is dangerous. But in this time, Egypt offered hope and restoration and reconciliation. God has a blessing for him there. God's will is good for his people because God is good. He desires to do good for his people. Now, I'm not giving you a message on like, if you trust in God, everything's gonna be great forever and you're gonna be healthy, wealthy, and wise. We know that's not true, right? We know that there in this life, Jesus said, in this life you will face tribulation, but take heart for I've overcome the world. 
right? But we're passing through, and that's what really we're, we're seeing here throughout Genesis, is that people passing through from one thing to the next, pilgrims. And it gives us this picture of who we are as believers, and here it is, they're, they're moving on to Egypt. But passing through as well, we're going to see that later. Just as we are pilgrims passing through this life, not yet in eternity. But God is good. And God desires to do good things in his people and for his people. He wants to bless us, guys, because he loves us. You want to bless your kids, right? I mean, you're not sitting there like, nah, you know what? I want my kids to suffer. I'll make them go through misery. Sometimes I'm like, I'll make, them, I'll make them hurt a little bit on this. You know, they make a bad decision. I'm like, I'm just going to let it happen. I'm just going to watch. And then I'll step in. Okay, now let's talk. If it's not too big, right? But let's, let's have a discipleship opportunity there. And God will sometimes allow us to make our decisions and take bad steps and be like, oh, okay, all right. I'll let you do that. Hopefully you learn from it. Now let's correct things. But we don't, want, we don't want bad things for our kids. We don't want to give bad gifts to our kids. We want to give good gifts. We want to bless them because we love them. God is the same with his children. He desires to do good. He is good, and he can only be good. And so then he says, and here's the comfort that comes with it. Go. Don't be afraid to go. Let's cast out that fear. And then what does he say? I will go with you. That is often partnered with fear not, or don't be afraid, for I am with you, for I will go with you, for I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, th this is a vision, this is a dream that is in line with the character and nature and word of God. That's who God is. He is always present in our time of need because God is present in our lives through our relationship with him. We need to invite him in to our decision-making like Jacob did. And so then in this, he hears that word, those great words of comfort, for I will go with you. I don't think there's anything more empowering than to hear the voice of God say, I will go with you. Now, my kids, you know, there's various times in life they've been afraid of all different things. One of them, when they're little, they're afraid of the ocean, right? A lot of kids are afraid of the ocean when they're little. Some of you are like, my kids are not, unfortunately. It's a little scary, but there's fear. And there's, there's, there needs to be a healthy fear of the ocean. But when they're little, at times, they, they were just terrified. They wouldn't go do more than put their, their toes in. And then that wave would come, they'd run away. And you come back and just get your, and then run away when the next wave, and I'm trying, let's go, guys. Come on, come on. Now they're all like, they get lost in the ocean half the day. It's great. I just get to sit in a chair now. But, but when they're real little, I, I got it. You know what? I will go with you. If you're afraid, what greater comfort than for your dad or your mom to say, I will go with you. And when I go, when, when they were little and I would go in the ocean with them, they were clinging on, right? Holding on. I'm not letting go. And sometimes I'm like, okay, hold on. Can you just give me, you know, 
Let go for a moment. We're both going to drown here. But there's that great comfort, that great confidence that dad is with us. And he says, I will go with you so that we don't have to be afraid. No matter what, we don't have to be afraid. God is with you. These great words of comfort. Our responsibility is to just enter into worship and know that he's with us. Enter into fellowship with him and know then that he is with us. He will never leave you nor forsake you. This is honestly all we need. Right? When, if God says, I will go with you, that really should be enough to silence our fear. The presence of God should silence our fear and doubt. So invite him. Stop and worship and recognize that in your worship, in your fellowship with God, you are not alone. And in that, we can be in step with God. So then it says, Jacob arose. He responds. Verse 5, right? He, I'm sorry, even further here, it says, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. To surely bring you up again is him saying, you know what, not only am I going to go with you, but I'm also going to return you to the promised land. And... This statement to say, Joseph will put his hands on your eyes, is saying, until your death, you're going to be safe, you're going to be cared for, and Joseph is going to be there with you, my son. Your son is going to be there. So Jacob arose, verse 5. They all went. He takes his whole family. They left nothing and no one behind moving forward in great confidence here. Because God told him to go, God told him he would go with him, and God told him he'd bring him back, bring his people back to the promised land. That should give us great confidence that God will be with us, that God tells us to do something, and that God will fulfill his promise to restore his people. So now Jacob is all in, right? That's it. He's ready. So they took their livestock, their goods, which they acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his son's sons, his daughters and his son's daughters and all his descendants, he brought with him to Egypt. All of them. Let's leave nothing behind. We are all in the whole family, because God said so. So now verse 8 to 27, we're going to read, and I'm going to try to pronounce some of these names. Should be a lot of fun, right? It's always fun to pronounce the names here. But verse 8, it says, Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The son of Reuben, sons of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. And the sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, 
and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimram. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, and Zalil. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, with his daughter Dinah, all the persons, his sons and his daughters were thirty-three. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Isui, Bariah, and Serah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah were Heber, Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, who Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And the sons of Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hapim, and Ard. These are some great names, guys. If you're, if you're having a baby soon or you have a friend who's having a baby, maybe you should offer, you know, Genesis 46 as a great uh, advice for these things. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jezeel, Guni, Jazer, and Shilem. These were the sons of Bilhah, who Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Okay. A lot of names we got through them. I'm sure I botched at least half of them, but that's okay. All these descendants that he brought with them is a clear demonstration of faith. And the fact that they are all listed here, there's a couple reasons. One is to prove that he was completely all in, right? And that confidence in moving forward and being all in, knowing is in knowing that they would be back, that the people would be restored to the land. Uh, and, and what he's doing here, what he's demonstrating in this faith is not trying to manipulate the will or the promise of God, not trying to make things work a certain way because, well, we're supposed to be in the promised land, right? Well, this is what's been given to us and we're supposed to be you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise, but God's calling us to Egypt and so maybe we should leave a few people behind and we can inhabit the land here and we could go try to do some things in Egypt as well. And they're not tr- he's not trying to find favor, He's not trying to make sure that they could remain in this promised land. 
This is a focus on the promise of God, putting it in God's hands. And the other thing that this demonstrates, this, these verses from 8 to 27, is Israel had a slow beginning, right? But now would expand very quickly in Egypt. And God said, I'm going to give you great nation, a great nation there in Egypt. Now this, from when God called Abraham, it took 25 years for him to add Jacob. Uh, Isaac, right? Then 60 years for Isaac to have Jacob. And then it was 50 to 60 more years for Jacob to have all of his sons, right? So then it took 215 years altogether to get to this point of 70 people, right? 215 years and 70 people. Some of you guys are having family reunions right now and you're like hundreds strong, right? Just think, 215 years, and there's only 70 people. And God promised, this is the lineage of promise that came from Abraham. There's only 70 in 215 years. Let's be real. That would give you reason to doubt, right? That doesn't seem like a great nation. That doesn't seem like many descendants. I mean, 70 is not bad, but in 215 years, it's not good. And so now we, we look at this whole picture and we can think how it's easy sometimes for people in our finite minds, it is easy for us to, tr to try to control God's promise and to think that God's not delivering on his promise. But now, in the next 430 years after this, there were millions. Think about that. 215 years it took for 70 people, and then at 430 years, right, double, double that amount of time, there's more than double the amount of people. It wasn't just 140 then. There was, it, it, it says in Exodus, it tells us 600,000 men left Egypt 430 years later of the Israelites. That's not accounting for the women and children. It is believed to be around 2 million people that fled from Egypt 430 years later. That's some serious reproduction. But this is what God did. He used this time in Egypt. And he, he made this promise to Jacob in a dream that, you know what, I'm going to multiply there. I'm going to bring blessing there. There's hope and there's promise even in Egypt. There's hope and there's promise. And I'm going to fulfill this great descendants, millions in a 430-year span versus 70 in a 215-year span. So now some of these descendants, though, right? We'll just note a couple things that we've seen along the way here. Judah, we remember the story perhaps of Judah and Tamar. Some bad things went down. Tamar, uh, and between Tamar, Judah, Ur, Ur, and Onan, which are referenced here, and Ur and Onan, the sons of Judah, died in Canaan because of their wickedness. That's why they died in Canaan. But now what's honestly beautiful to see is it's just kind of 
passed over. It's brushed over a little bit as Judah had come to a place of repentance and restoration. There's redemption to this line and out of the line of Judah comes Jesus. We see Benjamin then. Benjamin here is listed with the largest family but becomes the smallest tribe because of sin. And then you probably noticed as we read there even on Issachar, the name Job is mentioned there. And it's not verified that this is the Job, that the book of Job is written of, the story of Job, but it is believed by some, some scholars to be Job, right? So there, these are the descendants. This is what's coming out of the lineage of Jacob, the promises that come out and, and the great things that happen here. And then further, we see verse 28. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. So first of all, he sent Judah, and now we see Judah and Joseph together. He was sent on ahead. These two names mentioned here together. These two giants in the lineage of Israel, right? Judah and Joseph. I mean, Joseph is clearly making a massive impact. And further, Joseph's lineage would dominate Old Testament history. But then we know, of course, Judah. Judah come, or Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Here we see Judah of the Messianic lineage demonstrating the beautiful spirit of reconciliation as he went to show the way to Goshen, this land that had been set up for them in the land of Goshen. And Joseph then comes, and here we see that the father and the son meet. After so many years of suffering. What a scene this must have been. I mean, it says they, he wept a good long while. A picture truly of the father and the son reunited after years of suffering. In this moment of joy, reconciliation was complete. It happened. Finally happened. There were so many pieces of suffering along the way. There was so much pain and hurt for Joseph, for Jacob, for this whole dysfunctional family. And guys, let's get the picture, right? We are the dysfunctional family, we're sinful human beings. We have so much dysfunction, but yet there's still reconciliation. There's still redemption and there's still hope and God is still working and moving. And you know what? When that reconciliation was complete is when the son ascended and was with the father, seated at the right hand of the father. That was when the reconciliation was complete. After these years of suffering, 
all the pain. And then verse 31. And then men, I'm sorry, then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation, that you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph is arranging things for them to be able to settle in the region, right? And Joseph is, first of all, a successful mediator going to Pharaoh on their behalf, just like Christ is our mediator who goes to the Father on our behalf intercedes for us. Joseph is a successful minister as he directs his family, his brothers, and the household of his father. He saw things and knew things that they couldn't see or know. And his goal was to help them through it, to help them navigate. And what does he do then with that knowledge, with that understanding, with that knowledge of Pharaoh? He gives clear instruction. He has a knowledge of Pharaoh. He has a knowledge of Egypt and Egyptians, and he gives clear instructions. What to say and do, very specifically. Here's what you need to say. Here's what you need to, here's what I'm gonna say to Pharaoh, and then here's what you need to say to Pharaoh and what you need to do, how you need to respond. And so there's clear instruction, and then there's clear intention. And the intention here, guys, is that they would be in and not of Egypt. As Romans tells us, that we would be in the world and not of the world. Because Egypt is a representation of, of bondage, right? And 430 years later, they would be delivered from that bondage. But that's the heart, that's the intent of the Son, to bring us through Egypt that we would be in and not of it. To be spiritually, to not, not to be spiritually and socially connected, but to be spiritually and socially separated from the ways of the Egyptians. That's why it's outlined this way. And even Goshen was just outside of Egypt, on the outskirts of Egypt. So that they would remain pilgrims. That this would not be their home. What a picture it is for us, guys. We are pilgrims, and this is not our home. We are in this world and not of this world, and that is the intent of Joseph. That is the intent of Christ in us, that we would be in and not of the world, 
that we would be treating this life as though we are pilgrims passing through. And for them, living in Goshen is, is in this place ready to move on to the promised land with their eyes fixed on what God has in store, ready to fulfill the promise just as it is for us. That we are living this life for eternity. We are living this life with our eyes fixed on the promised land of heaven. We're passing through. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. This is not our home. And we need to keep our eyes fixed on eternity. There's so many parallels, so many pictures, as we've said for weeks now throughout the story of Joseph, pictures of Christ, pictures of us and our sin and eternity, and this is what we need to fix our eyes on is eternity and recognizing the reconciliation that has take, taken place, the redemption that has taken place, and the promise that we have that we are going to heaven. And we're not living as part of this world, but just in this world, leaving a mark along the way. Hopefully, reproducing and out, outliving the rest, being reproducers as believers, as they were, as they had they, the people of promise. God blessed them so that they would have many descendants. And this is what God does for us so that we would make disciples reproducing more and more believers, more and more Christians, more and more disciples, more people who are walking with Jesus and making an impact on this world. I start out every premarital counseling with couples to say, God's purpose for marriage is that we produce godly offspring, right? That's what it's all about. That's our purpose. And so what do we need to do? We need to outbreed everybody else as believers, have more kids than everybody else. Then we're gonna have more disciples than there are in the, in the other religions of the world. But this is the problem, guys. Let me tell you, right? The, the Muslim society, that is their goal, to outbreed everybody. And they average like six kids per family. You know what we average probably most of it? Like two or three. In America, it's like 2.1 or something like that. I don't know how you have a .1 kid, but... 2.1, there you go. But this is our calling, to make disciples. So that so many years later, the many descendants would outnumber the rest. And we could see God use his people in a mighty way as we pass through this life and fix our eyes on eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight and we thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you that you're faithful and that you fulfill your promises. We love you and we trust you and we put our hope in you. Well, tonight, as we've had last week, the week before, extra time here, and, and we do have some extra time tonight. So once again, I'd like to spend some time in open prayer as a congregation, 
as the Lord would lead, I'm going to ask you guys to pray as the Lord would move in your hearts. Pray out loud for us to hear. Pray loud enough for us to hear. And uh, ask the Lord to move as we have this fellowship with him. And we get more and more comfortable as a church doing this. It's important for us to be people of prayer. So Lord, we just ask for you. We ask for your presence here. Lord, we desire great fellowship with you tonight. Move in our midst, Lord. Let us be passionate for you in prayer tonight.